From your local Houston BMW Center studios, welcome to the Public Affairs Podcast, addressing local issues that affect our nation and shape our world. I'm your host, KG Smooth, joined by Uncle Funky Larry Jones, the market icon. And Unc, it is, um, well, we just wrapped up Hispanic Heritage Month. Yes. And a lot of history being shared that I didn't know. And this month was very reminiscent. I was just reminded of Black History Month, how stuff you know, we didn't know. You continue to learn, learn. about co- contributions that we had, and with uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, didn't know that they were just as equally as innovative mm-hmm. uh, as us black folk. Yeah, it's good information to know. And oh, by the way, just a quick shout out to everyone who early voted. And yeah. don't forget, November 3rd is just around the corner down the street, so I mean, you guys got to get out. Yeah, there. I mean, yeah, for real, really. All right. But um, in celebration of uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. Mm-hmm. We have on the phone line uh, a young lady who, I mean, her, this resume looks amazing. I mean, she's an architect. Yep. She's an attorney. She's a professor. Yes. <laughs> and a policymaker who works to create and preserve uh, great places like the place that we're going to be talking about today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Public Affairs Podcast, uh, Professor Sarah Bronin. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for um, being with us today. Um, So tell us a little about yourself. Well, I'm a law professor, uh, and as you mentioned, an architect. And uh, a lot of the things that I work on relate to the way government regulates uh, land and controls land and uh, also uh, you know, planning, zoning, land use, and I'm from Houston, um, so I know that Houston is actually one of the biggest cities without zoning, so a lot of what I research and write yeah. about is probably not relevant to, to you guys on a sort of day-to-day basis, but... but uh, well, they need to do something about zoning. I mean, we probably wouldn't have the flood issues that we have if they would have, but that's a whole nother show. Uh, <laughs> Bingo. That's 100% correct. 100%. That's a whole nother show. Um, but, Professor Bronin, you... I would imagine that you have probably spent majority of your adult life in school. You're an attorney and you're an architect. I mean, not unless you killed two birds with one stone, because that's that's a lot. Um, you know, I guess I'm one of those people that really likes likes school. So I did go to architecture school for five years, and then I went to graduate school for a couple of years, and then law school was always three years. So yeah, I guess I did. I did end up spending a lot of time in school. <laughs> Wow. But I, I'm one of the people that enjoys it and lucky enough actually to get scholarships to most of it. Um, so Excellent. we're very fortunate on that. That's amazing. And what you are, uh, what you have been doing here lately uh, with expanding the country's uh, National Park Service with the um, uh, Palo Alto National Battlefield Park to expand to include Fort Brown. Uh, which is in Brownsville, Texas. So um, I'm not familiar with the story uh, until I read up on it um, through your bio and what your PR people sent us. Uh, Can you tell us this incredible story? Because it sounds so familiar. Yep. And, you know, coming off the heels of Hispanic Heritage Month, this really is is a part of our nation's history, uh, you know, this, this story. Uh, and, and it really is a story about 
um, a family back in the 1840s living down in Brownsville that had their land taken away uh, by government uh, without compensation. And as it turned out, the, the land was used for uh, the construction of Fort Brown, which, as you mentioned, is in Brownsville, Texas. Uh, it was used by then-General Zachary Taylor. Of course, he later became president, who was marching on Mexico to make sure that Texas was uh, considered part of the United States. Hmm. And you know, so the story really starts back in 1846. Wow. And I tell people all the time, I say, I've been saying this, and I learned this from my grandmother. She was like, Texas ain't nothing but Mexico anyway. <laughs> You know, it certainly was carved out. And, you know, the big dispute back in the 1830s, 1840s was, is Texas you know, part of Mexico? Is it part of the United States? And, and there was a war fought over it. And so when, when Zachary Taylor marched on this land, uh, you know, he basically planted a flag and said, this is where our fort's going to be. It was right on the Rio Grande, the southernmost tip of Texas, which makes it the southernmost tip in the United States. And it just so happened that the, the family that he took the land from was one of my ancestors, Miguel Salinas. And so it's kind of ironic that I do property law now, um, you know, when this sort of eminent domain exercise t- took a big, important, you know, farm that, that my family had farmed. It was 22 acres, it had 12 buildings on it, um, you know, it was was back in my family's history, something I didn't even really realize until recently when, when some of these things started coming up again. Man. Um, <laughs> it, it just sounds, man, it sounds like a slavery story. I mean, that's why I said when it sounds familiar, like it sounds like so many stories that I have read, heard of, of, of black families and, you know, just reading up on uh, your family the Salinas family, like it, it just, it just sounds like another <laughs> black family who was done wrong by the country in massa. So if you think about it, you're, you're exactly right. If you look particularly at where large scale infrastructure, like highways, um, you know, where, where were they located in the 1950s and 1960s? Uh, where was urban renewal located and in what kinds of neighborhoods in what kinds of places around the country? And if you really look hard, it's always in poor neighborhoods mm-hmm. or and or in neighborhoods of people of color, whether it's black or, or Latino or, you know, as I said, poor, poor generally, you know, poor, poor whites as well were affected yep. by these large scale projects. Um, but disproportionately, you know, who who was the, the group that was hurt the most and, and you know, was property taken away? I mean, it started back in slavery, but also, you know, in, in, in the United States, even when Texas was um, in the Civil War era, you had property being taken from Mexican-Americans and, and, mm-hmm. as well. So the story of oppression is um, almost uh, sadly universal among people of color today. And then people wonder, well, why don't, you know, black and Hispanic people have uh, have accumulated wealth. Well, it's because you took it from us. Right. I mean, come <laughs> you on. You know, so. <laughs> Point blank it's period. It's all part of the history. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Not to mention what we did to our Native American brothers and sisters. It's just appalling. But Sarah, we're fascinated by your family history and this beautiful story. So how do you, this professor and architect, now 
untangle this weave and and is it to get the property back in the family name or make sure the fort's preserved and the true story about the fort is told? That is a great question. And I think that the real, uh, the only realistic option is probably the second one. It's probably not realistic to expect for the National Park Service to uh, give all the ancestors of Miguel Salinas, you know, a piece of the land. And if you really think about it, you know, that he had something like 12 kids. They probably had children. My, my grandmother on that side was one of eight children. Mm. So even finding the descendants themselves to give them the land would be totally impractical. So instead, you kind of look to that second suggestion that you have, which is how do we tell our story and how do we include the story of the Salinas family and their their very nice farm and they're being prosperous sellers and then they're really being robbed of that um, as part of this national park site that's being proposed to expand to include uh, what was Fort Brown. You know, I, I, what really I'm hoping happens is that the story is included uh, when people visit the site and the story is told. Um, it's it, the, the Fort Brown didn't emerge from nothing. It emerged on someone's land. Yes. Yeah, I think this is all divine that you uh, are spearheading this and managing this whole thing. I mean, A, it's your family, and B, like you, you do uh, property law, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it's just like this was the answer. Just KG said, "Hang on, we 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 got yeah, one coming." We got, yeah, and, 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 and not only that, it's a part of the bloodline. Exactly. Like, so exactly. Uh, that within itself. Uh, it's fascinating. What other new discoveries about your family and even the property itself that uh, you have discovered and just thought was like, wow. Well, again, you know, this story is not unique. So you actually see stories of, uh, you know, predominantly in that part of the uh, of part of Texas, the Lower Rio Grande Valley, it's Mexican, Amer Mexican families or Mexican American families whose land has been taken, was taken away. Um, for, uh, under various pretenses and various schemes. And a lot of it was that they did not speak English. And in fact, my ancestors, um, the Salinas family, was, was well-documented to have not spoken any English and to have not understood what, what uh, General Taylor wanted of them and did not understand that they were leaving the land forever um, when, they were, when they were asked to do so. Um, so, I, you know, I guess one surprising thing that, that people should know is that this is a very common story and, and not, as you note, just in the lower Rio Grande Valley, but, uh, but everywhere. So I would, you know, think about, you know, what does this mean for our modern laws on things like eminent domain or on things like, you know, the rights of people to be um, compensated when their property is taken? It's written into the Constitution, but for, for people... Uh, whose land is being taken for roads or, you know, run-of-the-mill small-scale projects, are they really all getting compensated uh, justly if they don't have lawyers and they don't have lawyers in their family and they don't know who to turn to? Uh, you know, do they just take the small check they're offered and cash it? So it's really something for us to think about more generally about our modern practices in this regard. Mm -hmm. When were you uh, interested in learning uh, this history and wanting to preserve uh, the fort and get the story out there? Was this something that had been uh, told in your family throughout uh, the generations and as you were coming up? Or was it something that you stumbled upon and said, hmm, let me dig a little deeper and, and see what this is about? 
I, you know, it was a story that had been uh, mentioned or whispered about ever since I was little, uh, you know, that, that my family always felt that they had a claim to some area of land in Brownsville and that it was taken away. Um, but I was able to take uh, something that my, my mom's aunt sent to her, a package of information, and, you know, my mom sent it to me, and, you know, it contained uh, basically little little pieces of information that I could then use to piece together um, the story of, of the particular parcel and uh, exactly what happened or what I think happened. Uh, so it was part of this much larger grant from the Spanish government as I mentioned, about 22 acres were carved out, um, were eventually purchased by uh, this ancestor, Miguel Salinas of mine. Um, and, you know, he, he kind of worked it through the process of building it up into a prosperous farm. Now, after it was taken away, he actually tried to fight for it back. Mm-hmm. But if you follow the court cases, which I, you know, again, found um, in various sources, um, you, you can see how his power to do so was slowly chipped away. So there were a couple of um, Anglo white white uh, um, individuals who kind of bought out his ability to um, to sue. Uh, there was various nefarious looking court dealings um, because of course who could go to court and who was listened to in court. It certainly wasn't a Spanish speaking, uh, you know, at the time Mex- Mexican um so it, it was really interesting to kind of go through all of that. And, you know, I think a lot of people probably have these kinds of stories in their family. Um, and, uh, you know, not maybe not everybody has the legal research skills, but I bet there's a lot of these stories out there. And I'd really be interested to hear from people who have similar situations in their families. Indeed. Well, one piece of story, Sarah, because of your, your, your being on the podcast today, which struck a, a, a wonderful chord with me was the Brownsville affair of uh, 1906 and where the, the Buffalo soldiers were accused of, of, of killing some white citizens in Brownsville, which they were later acquitted on. But having you on today spurred that piece of interest for me. And I, I have family members who are descendants of the Buffalo soldiers. So I wasn't even aware of that piece of my history. So thank you for that piece of enlightenment. And, and that's why we do this podcast, so people can grow and learn a great deal about their particular histories. Yeah, and, and that was another disgraceful incident mm-hmm. that just highlighted the fact that, you know, we're, we think sometimes, especially in Houston, you know, I mean, I think in Houston you have a lot of different cultures. There's a very, it's very welcoming to immigrants mm-hmm. in many respects, but we sort of brush over that, um, the, the history of racism um, in Houston, you know, down in the Valley. Again, people think down in the Rio Grande Valley, well, it's majority Hispanic. So, you know, there's, there's no racism there. Um, but the reality is, is even when my grandfather was growing up, you know, there were colored fountains for the Mexican Americans, brown mm. fountains. Um, mm. You know, it's the same, it's the same story where there's a dominant group and, and, you know, you, you don't have that kind of, modern understanding of how people are, are just equal bottom line ends of story. You know, you, you've been indoctrinated into this idea that you're, you are the dominant culture and, um, you know, so many cases around the state over the decades. Um, and of course, even today, but you know, so many cases where people have taken advantage of it. And it's not something we talk about so much 
in Texas, um, you know, in part because our we do have multicultural cities, we do have multicultural regions, um, and, and we, we, we think that that makes us immune from, from racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, the truth is your, 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 your research and your work will, will, will help get the story out. And as we said in the, 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 the beginning of the podcast, what we like to get is the truth told, the correct sides of these stories. So everyone can look and say, that was a part of my ancestry or my, my great, great grandpappy uh, built that land or developed this farm or I am a part of this. It, the inclusion can only build more pride in your community, I believe, and, 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 and you wanting to do more for your great state. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting that you say that. Um, so this week, um, th- there's a meeting of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which is essentially the national umbrella organization for historic preservation, which is all about preserving the places that tell our story. And right before I got uh, on this call, I was listening to Sherilyn Eisel, the president and general counsel of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, mm-hmm. and Darren Walker, who's the president of the Ford Foundation. Um, both of them speaking to the importance of preserving civil rights sites, African-American sites in particular, um, and about that organization's African-American Cultural Heritage Fund, where they're actually funding sites associated with black Americans all over the country. And I find that really inspiring and important. Um, You know, of course, I, I also work on Latino heritage and Latino sites, But I think when a national organization starts to step up and say, yes, this history is important, um, and, you know, we really try to highlight and showcase, um, you know, the the fact that this is an essential part of the American story, uh, that's really when we can all make change. It's it's not even about looking backward. It's about looking at our past in light of where it is we want and need to go in the future. Sarah, what was the response or the reaction uh, when you presented that they expand the National Battlefield Park to include Fort Brown? So, so that was so that's the current proposal, and so that was not my certainly not my proposal. That was a proposal that they um, that uh, was sort of underway um, to include, and it's already part of a national. Uh, the, the Fort Brown earthworks are part of the national site, but it, to be part also of the part Palo Alto National Battlefield site would again elevate that site to something at, at a bigger at a bigger level. But what I what I what I've been pointed in that um, conversation is really that um, the uh, the the expansion was is most likely, as currently planned, going to be just about Zachary Taylor and the military aspects of the site. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably continue to ignore the fact that the site was taken from somebody and the nature of that taking and uh, the the injustice that it caused on a family you know, that lasted generations, I, I would say. So uh, that's really my focus when it comes to the expansion is not... Uh, necessarily, you know, do do we expand or not? But if but if we are expanding, uh, you know, let's let's include this story because that's really an important part of it. Well, Sarah, we're going to have to leave that right here, and we'd like to give our listeners a chance to find you through your social media or additional podcasts that you might be involved in. 
Great. Um, so my I, I'm online at sarahbronin.com and S-A-R-A-B-R-O-N-I-N. And I'm very active on Twitter. And I'd love to hear from uh, my uh, folks in my hometown of Houston, which I, at, at least uh, not during coronavirus time, but I'm there quite a bit <laughs> uh, throughout the year. I uh, can't travel now, but I'd uh, love to hear from folks uh, on Twitter at Sarah Bronin. Indeed. Property professor, attorney, historic preservation expert, architect. I mean, what don't you do? The incredible Sarah Bronin. Uh, thank you so much for your time and coming on the Public Affairs Podcast. Thank you, Sarah. It was a Thanks pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yes, ma'am. Bye-bye. All right. For everyone listening, the podcast will continue right after this. From your local Houston BMW Center studios, welcome back to the Public Affairs Podcast, addressing local issues that affect our nation and shape our world. I am KG Smooth. And I'm Uncle Foncularry Jones and KG again. We want to thank everyone who took time to early vote. Yep. Remember November 3rd's coming up, and to get your voice heard, you must vote and vote and vote. Texas is looking good. I mean, we we're, are. We're leading. We are. And they're talking about it being a toss-up state. Well, you know, we, we recognize the lie. And so we'll eliminate the lie and do better with what we have. Yeah, indeed. And speaking of uh, doing, doing better, better, yes, sir. Um, it is always a joy to uh, talk to this young lady. I don't know if she remembers. I spoke with her some years ago when I was hosting Access Houston on 97.9 uh, The Box. She is the founder of the uh, Damani Gibson Foundation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rakaya Gibson to the Public Affairs Podcast. Uh, good to hear from you again. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's amazing to be here again. And I do remember that when I was with Action CDC and mm-hmm. you helped us with some um, events that we were doing back then. So you've always been a voice for the community, and I thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Well, this is, is just is what we do, as Ankh says. Excellent. It is what okay. we do. Uh, Rakaya. Tell us your story. People mm-hmm. aren't familiar. You know, they're, they're, they're not familiar. Some people haven't even heard of sudden cardiac arrest. So um, just tell us your story uh, about Damani and, you know, how the foundation uh, was started. Wow, yeah. Um, sudden cardiac arrest, I'll tell you that I didn't know much about it before it happened to me. And I've been a coach for over a decade. Mm. And, um, you know, coaches, we learn about CPR and AEDs. We learn about concussions, but sudden cardiac arrest, for some reason, is not a topic of discussion. Sudden cardiac arrest is believed to be so rare. And so when I lost my son, I was devastated. And I was, I felt so alone. Like, how could this happen to me? This thing that is a one in a million thing, why would it happen to me? Somebody that's you know, trying to serve the community, trying to do right by God, and my son is taken away. And then the more I researched sudden cardiac arrest, I found out that it happens to 7,000 youth every year. Mm-hmm. And my son happened to be one of those. And it was without warning. Because yeah. the things that I did hear about sudden cardiac arrest, most people would think that, you know, the kid has a symptom or they have a pre-existing heart condition and, you know, they are able to tell somebody that something is hurting them or bothering them. And that was not the case with Damani. He was healthy. He was vibrant. He was just perfect. And one day he went to practice. Mm-hmm. And he came home from practice. And 
you know, he was fine. So it didn't happen at practice. That's the other thing we believe about sudden cardiac arrest is that it only happens during physical activity. Mm-hmm. He had practiced and it was a couple of hours after practice and he just suddenly stopped breathing mm-hmm. with no warning. He was talking, laughing one minute, and then he stopped breathing. And he was gone. And I tried my best. I tried to do CPR. I, I did everything that I could. And you're thinking when you're doing CPR, as soon as the ambulance gets here, everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. Not thinking as a parent, okay, it takes, it took 15 minutes for the ambulance to arrive. Mm-hmm. And with CPR, they say that your chance of survival decreases every minute by 10%, that you don't have an AED shock. So with 15 minutes, we're beyond 100%, right. you know, decrease of survival rate, even though he's getting CPR. So I've learned so much about this since then, but Damani was just a perfect child. I mean, never mind if mom was going to say that about the child. He wasn't perfect, but he was amazing. And he was truly a gift. He was, uh, when I look back on some of the things that he did with me, like when I was a coach, we would go and do volunteer projects and he would want to go with me. He would go with us to do, to go to the star hope and serve meals to the homeless. He would go after hurricane Harvey and, help fix people's homes. That's the kind of kid he was. When I would go to different houses of my athletes to talk to them if they were having issues, he would ride with me. He was my sidekick. He was there with me every step of the way. And I just, I, I, I have a void right now, but I try to remember that he's still with me. Mm-hmm. And that's why with the Damani Gibson Foundation, I go so hard every single day because I know that that is the only way to keep his spirit alive, his, his memory alive, and his legacy alive is to continue to help people the way that he helps people when he was here. And I know that it has to be a total um, mind penetration to know that no symptoms, no, you, you can't detect this. I mean, there's, your son had no symptoms. You know, when I think back, the only thing that I can identify was maybe being a little tired. And when I talk to other moms, they say that their child was a little tired, too, you know, that experiences. But as a parent, you're not going to think my child is tired. Right. You're not going so to connect right, some sort of heart disease or, you know, some heart connection with them, a teenager just being tired. Yeah. No, no, not at all. The money, you know, when he went to practice that morning, I asked his coach, I was like, did he have any symptoms? Did he show anything? He said that Damani was running so fast at practice. Anybody that knows track knows that if you're doing handoffs, when the coach has to extend the step because the incoming runner is running up on the outgoing runner, that that person is at their maximum velocity. And that's how Damani was. He said he had to keep moving the other runner out because Damani was running him over. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, um, so, so far since all of this, what have you learned about sudden cardiac arrest? That it's sudden. It mm. is so sudden, without warning, without symptoms. You know, I talked to over a hundred families. I started a group on Facebook because when this happened to me, I, like I said, I felt so alone, and I wanted to know who else this has happened to, mm-hmm. if anyone. So I started a group, and we have over a hundred members in the group who've also lost their children the same way. And most of them, you know, their kids are, will take a nap and never wake up mm. or go to sleep at night and never wake up. Kids that were healthy, no problems, no chest pain, 
no shortness of breath, you know, athletes, non-athletes, all kinds of kids, five-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds. And like Damani, he was 17. And for some reason, there are a lot of kids at around that age that it's occurring um, for. Yeah. And so it happens at home often than at practice. But what we think is that it happens at practice or at games because those are the ones that get on the news. So for me, the importance of me speaking out has been not to let this be one that's brushed under the rug because it did not happen in the public eye. Because two-thirds of all sudden cardiac arrest do not happen during sports. It's the number one killer of student-athletes. It kills more kids than concussions, but we put a lot of focus on concussions. Mm -hmm. And it's the number one killer on school campuses. One out of every 25 schools will experience a sudden cardiac arrest on campus every year. Coach, it's, it's Larry. I, I, um, first of all, my heart goes out to you, and I, 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 I read the story. I remember, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the incident. In your research and your due diligence, are or have you found any supplements or any deficiencies in the blood, the, 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 the veins, the, the cardio mechanism of your son or, or the kids that maybe – uh, some supplements could help, or was this just something that's going to happen? Or, or let me rephrase it, has the possibility of ha- of happening? Well, I, I can't say that uh, supplements, okay, of course, you know, hydration and nutrition is important, but usually with sudden cardiac arrest, it's not due to those things. Okay. Um, there are, you know, maybe some cases that it does happen, you know, due to deficiencies. But the majority of them are um, arrhythmias or some kind of electrical disturbance Mm. in the heart. And so how you would prevent it is through preventative tests. So in Italy, for example, they they give the EKG to all athletes. It's mandatory. And they've reduced sudden cardiac arrest by 85% in their country just by implementing that preventative test. So we do physical exams here, and people, every time I share my story, people are like, well, you know, kids have to take physicals. Yeah, they take physicals, but they're using a stethoscope to listen to their heart. And a stethoscope misses 90% of the conditions that lead to sudden cardiac arrest. Mm. So we're such a money hungry country. Yeah, I was just, yeah, to my point, we're such a money hungry, capitalistic country that you have to pay top dollar to get top treatment. And if EKGs were, just a regular routine, a part of it, instead of the stethoscope, then maybe we could see, you know, some other things. All to your point. All to your yes. point. Wow, wow, wow. Look at. Mm, mm, mm. And I wish it was included in the physical, the EKGs, right? Yeah. We, we do mammograms for preventative tests. We do prostate exams for preventative tests. If we know that this many kids are passing away each year, not 7,000, you know, overall, but 7,000 every single year. Why can't we do that? We do eye exams for them in elementary school. We do ear exams for them, but we're not going to do an exam of the uh, the organ that keeps them living and breathing. Right. The main thing. So is your foundation promoting this, Coach? Is this what you're... Yes. Okay, good. Good. Yes. We, we, we do a lot of awareness because, number one, if people don't know that it's an issue, then they're not going to pursue the test. Correct. I, I would have never known that I needed to fight to get the test for my kid, you know? So raising awareness so that families are informed of the risks, the, the symptoms that do exist, because there are some symptoms, 
all kids do not just go with no symptoms like Damani, but fatigue is a symptom. I've learned out afterwards. So I've learned that, that he did have a symptom, but at that time, it was not what I would consider a symptom to take him to the doctor. Mm. So he had fatigue. Um, some kids have shortness of breath. There have been a couple of kids that I've talked to that have dizziness right before it happens. This month is, um, 